like at the most important stats, most important tournaments, most important places, Kristen isn't just at an amazing level, but it is just so far beyond what her opponents are doing that that's what makes this season truly special. 2023 was a historic season for Kristen Tatar. With nine wins, including all four majors, Kristen shattered records and expectations of what a dominant performance looks like in the modern disc golf era. Today on the stat line, it's part one of our discussion of Tatar's streaks and sweeps, and we'll sit down with legend of the game Juliana Korver to discuss the historical context of these records and how far the game has come. Join us here on the Statmando Podcast Network. Welcome into the show. My name is Steve Timko. I'm here with 2022 U.S. Women's Champion in FA1, Emily Yale. Emily, it's early, mid-December. Is it snowing yet in Utah, or can you still get out and, and play some? Oh, no, it's snowing now, but the valley doesn't hold too much, so you can play down there, especially if you're willing to tolerate some snow or mud but it's, it's ski season time. Fair enough. It's uh, cold and rainy in Seattle, so better weather to talk about disc golf than go play disc golf. So we are starting off the first episode of the stat line, and we're going to take our first two episodes to talk about the biggest headline and story of the 2023 season, and that was Kristen Tatar's play. Um, she swept the majors. She just was phenomenal on the course. And so let's set the stage for this 2023 season. What had we seen from her prior to 2023? And, and what were the expectations coming into this season? She won her first major in 2019 at U.S. Women's. But with COVID following the year after, her touring was substantially interrupted, so she didn't have any elite or major wins in 2020. In 2021, at the Worlds in Utah, she took fifth, and she also ended up with a third place and two wins on the Elite Series. In 2022, she had six wins, which included Worlds and the Tour Championship, and she didn't miss the podium a single time. So coming into 2023, she had two major wins, she had six elite wins, and she hadn't missed a podium for an Elite Series event. So I think expectations were already quite high coming into this 2023 season. She was recovering from a elbow surgery, and there was some question about um, how quickly she could get started, but she started well winning her first event in Waco, and that extended her perfect podium stretch at Elite Events to 17 Elite Events without missing a podium. That streak ended at the next event at the Open of Austin, where she took fifth. So that's 17 straight podiums. That's the fifth longest stretch of elite podiums all time. But then if we look at that perfect podium, that record is set by Juliana Corver. She had 22 elite starts before missing a podium. And we're going to get to talk to Juliana about that in a little bit, which is pretty exciting. Following uh, Tatar season after that, she did have back-to-back -back wins at both Music City and Champions Cup. So big win at Champions Cup, which was the first major of the year. Uh, she took it down with a 14-stroke margin, which is the largest margin of victory at an FPO major with a 30-plus player field. 
also meant she had back-to-back major victories by eight or more strokes. And her major win was wire to wire. So she had the lead after each round at Champions Cup, and it included having the hot rounds in every round. Following Champions Cup, uh, she took sixth at Jonesboro, but then she went ahead and won the Portland Open, which brings us to our next streak. Between 2022 Jonesboro and Portland this year at 2023, Kristen Tatar shot at least 1,000 rated round in each of her 12 straight elite major or throw pink starts. That is double the next longest streak, which was Paige Pierce back in 2020 and 21. This season, ratings was a big story with Kristen. She fell just short of being 1,000 rated, um, reaching eventually 999, which is the record for the highest rated FPO player ever. She has 11 career 1,000 rated events now, which started at 2021 Preserve. Since then, there's only one other woman who has shot multiple 1,000 rated events at any PDGA events. Emily, do you know who that is? Missy Gannon. It is Own Scoggins. She's done it three times, including her win I'm so at sorry, Diplo Owen. this year. <laughs> I'm so sorry. All right. So following up, let's just quickly run through kind of the middle of the season here. So she got fourth at DDO, and then she won Des Moines. She got second at the Preserve, so then she won PCS. And then we come to her next big win of the year, European Open. Uh, she takes it down by 16 strokes. So back-to-back double-digit major wins for her 2023 season right now. Pretty incredible. Not included in the tour, but still a notable win for her. She took down the European Disc Golf Championship. She shot an incredible 10.55 rated second round. This is the fifth highest FPO rated round of all time. After the European swing, uh, Kristen came back and won her second world championship up in Vermont and going wire to wire once again. So she led for 18 straight FPO major rounds. It started at 2022 Worlds and then she went wire to wire in the next four majors. The record um, again is set by Juliana Corver. It was 20 straight rounds back in 1999 and 2000. And in that stretch of four major wins, Kristen Tatar shot each of those above 1,000 rated. After that world championship, she takes a second place finish at MVP and then went on to the final major of the year at U.S. Women's. So at U.S. Women's, she became the first woman to ever win all four FPO majors in a single season. Uh, It's important to point out that in the early days, there was only one major every year, and that was Worlds. U.S. women started in 1999, and so from then on, we had at least two majors in each season. Juliana Corver won both of the majors in 1999. Valerie Jenkins was the first to win four majors in 2008, but she missed out on a sweep in a narrow loss at U.S. Women's. Paige Pierce has won three majors in a year in 2017. She actually only played the three that she won because she skipped the European Open and missed out on the opportunity for a sweep then. There is an FBO player who won five in a row. That is, of course, Juliana Corver. So after taking down U.S. women's, completing the sweep 
Kristen ended up taking fourth at the tour championships. Her total earnings put her at over $116,000 this season, which is the most of any player. That's right, including all of the men's players as well. Kristen Tatar won more money than them. Overall, undeniably an incredible season, um, capping it off with the, the major sweep. I'm really excited to talk now with five-time world champion Juliana Corver and get her take on some of those streaks we talked about, her play back in the day, and how the game has changed over time. So let's jump into that interview. Joining us now is Juliana Corver. Juliana, thank you for being here today. Oh, thank you for the invitation. We'll start off with a quick introduction by way of some of your accolades for those who are not familiar. You are a Disc Golf Hall of Famer. You're a five-time FPO World Champion, six-time FPO Major Champion, 11 majors total, including the reigning FP50 World Champion. You have 16 national tour wins, and you're a five-time PDGA Player of the Year. You're also the first woman to shoot a thousand rated round back in 1999. And then this weekend, you shot another thousand rated round, um, 10, 16. Congratulations on that. So you also have the longest span of shooting thousand rated rounds, obviously. And finally, you were the first woman to shoot a thousand rated event. So lots of storied history with your career. And we're really excited to talk to you about it today. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you for coming into the sport and starting to keep track of these records because I fear had you not come, or maybe had I not come back, uh, a lot of what I did in the earlier years would have been lost history. So I do appreciate that. Yeah, we definitely want to make sure that history is preserved. So uh, we're going to start off talking about the majors because obviously this year, Chris and Tatar sweeping the majors, that was one of the biggest storylines that we had for 2023. And so starting with her 2022 Worlds, she led for 18 straight major rounds that ended with her win at 2023 Worlds. The record is actually 20 straight rounds, which you set from 1999 uh, Worlds Round 4 to 2000 Worlds Round 8. Were you aware of the streak at all during that time? Not at all. Nope. Not cognizant of that one bit. What do you think now hearing, hearing about it and having the context for uh, Kristen's 18? Well, I, because of the number of people in the division and the level of play, uh, clearly Kristen's is much more impressive than mine was. All right. That's fair. <laughs> Amy Schiller caught you, and she led after the 1999 Worlds Round 3. That, combined with your decision to skip the 2000 Women's National Championship in favor of USDGC, kind of prevented that streak from being, honestly, probably twice as long. <laughs> um, so I want to talk a little bit about USDGC. So why was it important for you to skip WNC to play USDGC that year? It was the best tournament of the year, bar none. No questions asked. Uh, the very first year of USDGC, I did play women's nationals, and we played at Hornet's Nest in Charlotte, and then USDGC, of course, was at Winthrop in Rock Hill. So I would play my course, I would play my round in the morning, and then I would drive down to Winthrop to experience that event. And I would have done it no matter what that event was like, because that's just what you did back then. You played your round, and then you watched whoever was left on the course to play their round. And I can very distinctly remember the feel 
the energy, the electricity. I mean, it was just, it was way ahead of its time. And I, I feel bad, but I instantly regretted playing women's nationals that year because of how grandiose it felt at Winthrop. And I knew that I was going to play USDGC from then on if they conflicted and they did for a couple of years. Okay. So in 2000, were they playing Hornets Nest? Hornets Nest. I, I believe okay. they were still playing in Charlotte um, the second year. And then they think they came down and played their final nine or final 18 at Winthrop early in the morning before the men went out. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So then obviously in 2000, you played USDGC. Um, you took 37th, which only barely put you outside the cash. Um, but you beat a lot of big name players like Dave Feldberg or Avery Jenkins, and they were significantly higher rated at the time. So then thinking about going into uh, 2001 USDGC was the goal that year to cash. You know, I don't remember thinking that, but I'm sure that it was because the way that I judged how I was playing, uh, well, you got to remember that women played the same courses as men. It was extraordinarily unusual for there to be any difference between our courses. So I could cross compare and ratings were based on everybody playing men and women together. So I very easily could compare how I was playing against the men. And no matter where I finished in the women's, I I could win significantly and still be upset if, you know, I was only halfway up in the men's division. So I wasn't happy with how I played unless I would have cashed in the men's. Didn't happen a lot, but that was always what I was striving for. That's that's awesome to hear. <laughs> I love that way of uh, ensuring that you're always pushing yourself to the highest, kind of regardless of what's going on around you. So you're the only woman to cash at USDGC. I think to the best that we know, which of course some of the things in the past have been lost to time, you're the only woman who's cashed at an MPO major. So. For you, where does that sit in your list of accomplishments? Initially, when it happened, it was it was probably below all of the world championship titles. But now, as I've gotten older and um, kind of looking back on it, I think it's second behind my first world title. I I'm, wow. I am. Um, it it means more across the board. You know, I mean, women's world titles—they're great and. I'm grateful for them and it was a huge accomplishment, but you know, that's not necessarily that impressive to a guy, but I can tell anybody that I cashed at USDGC and that should hopefully raise an eyebrow or two. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that that the depth of the men's field has been there for, for longer, of course. So I think anyone kind of understands that. I, I really like, I mean, at first, maybe now people would, are upset by the the one division one champion. But to me, that was so motivating because, you know, now I'm, there's no qualification. Oh, she's good for whatever excuse, you know, or for whatever, you know, right. She's just good. (laughs) And and I I didn't want to have any, any qualifications and I wanted to go compete with the best people on the planet. And that's where I could do so. Yeah. For sure. That's awesome. So you went on to win 2001 Worlds. So since you skipped 2000 Women's Nationals, that was five FPO majors in a row that you played. And that record stood for over 20 years before Kristen tied it this year 
and she became the first woman to win five straight FPO majors on the calendar. So given that, you know, in between we've seen other top players rise like Val or Paige, were you surprised to hold this record for so long? Again, wasn't aware that there was such a record. <laughs> Just <laughs> didn't think in those terms. But now that you're asking me to think in those terms, um, yes and no. I mean, the, the women's division always seems to have a dominant player. And mm-hmm. both Paige and Val and, you know, Des in her time, Elaine in her time, have all held that prestigious point. So, yeah, it, it seems like that probably should have happened again between myself and Chris. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So given where we are with the women's field now, Kristen won her fifth. Um, what were your personal reactions to that? Well, <laughs> I actually feel a little bit of pride in in how big the field is now and how well everybody's doing. I mean, I feel like I'm one stepping stone to where we are today, and I hope that doesn't sound hubris. But uh, I'm I'm really I really like seeing all the successes of all of the women at the top and. Kristen is just, you know, blowing away expectations right now. And um, to be, you know, arguably the most, the, I don't know how to say it, the uh, highest esteem, the, you know, I mean, above and beyond even the MPO players for for what she's doing. And um, yeah, I I, um, actually get quite emotional if I think about it deeply, because I feel like maybe if I hadn't done what I did 20 years ago, um, maybe this wouldn't quite be where it is yet today. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think uh, everyone in the sport now absolutely considers your achievements and your accomplishments a critical stepping stone to get to where we are in the sport. One, so. of, one of the things, another reason why I was so proud of what happened at USDGC is because I wanted to open people's eyes that the women were athletes and, and good disc golfers. And it wasn't just in their little pond on, you know, on, away from the, the top in the field. So yeah, I, I want to bring recognition to the women's division and, and show that we can be impressive too. I love that. I love that so much. And you played a, a role in organizing women's divisions at, at events back in the 90s. Can you tell us a bit about the, the website you created? <laughs> so I, I, um, started learning HTML back in 1993, which was almost at its inception. And I was trying to find things to, you know, what would people want to see on the web when the web didn't yet exist? And, and well, disc golf was my passion at that time. So I started trying to figure out what might be interesting. And then it became a little self-serving. And <laughs> to be honest, I, um, I started reaching out to every single tournament director and I would give them uh, suggestions of things that they could do to encourage female participation at their events. And then I asked them to respond with, you know, what they then were planning to do. And if it, if it was enough, it was above whatever bar I had set, then I would, in my own mind, mark that as a female friendly event. And I then also had a database of all the women that I knew of that played that had email because not everybody had email back then. 
And I would advertise those events to those women. And then I would ask the women to tell me which events they were going to. So now I know which tournaments are doing the most and which tournaments are going to have the highest participation. So I can go to the events that have the, the most women at it. So, so that's how it benefited me. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also um, had an online calendar, which was the first online calendar for disc golf that showed all the tournaments and any weekend that had an event where one of those tournament directors that said that they would do special things to try to encourage women's participation, then I would mark that weekend with a pink female symbol. And then that would link to more information about that event. So, you know, I was just trying to network. And another thing that I initiated, but then backed away from pretty quickly is trying to coordinate places for women to stay, but then that felt a little dangerous. So I, I didn't want to continue in that particular endeavor. But yeah, I was just trying to, there were so few women. So I was just trying to figure out a way to make it possible for us to find each other at events. I, I love that. And in those, those early days too, you, you mentioned finding the, the best and, and most competitive fields to go uh, play at. While you were still developing your game, how, how did that help you um, grow as a player and improve your skills? One of the best things, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a little bit behind <laughs> what, where that question is. One of the best things that ever happened to me within the first year of me playing, the guys that I played with, well, they didn't have a car. I did. They wanted to go to Worlds. They convinced me to take them to Worlds. So I did. And, you know, I wasn't, this is Pro Worlds 1999 in Huntsville, Alabama. and I clearly wasn't at a level where I could be playing yet. And so, you know, I was just walking around watching everybody play for the first couple of days and it was exciting and it was wonderful. And it was the inaugural year of the Hall of Fame, which then became a page on my website as well. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, so all of that was exciting, but then it was like a, a switch flipped while I was watching the top four women practice putting before the final nine, which used to be a thing at world championships. And I was, I had mostly been watching the guys because I was the Uber driver for the guys <laughs> I was, I was with, but before the final nine, they're all playing on the same course. The women are going to go out first and I'm, I'm just staring at them, watching them all practice putt and I'm enthralled and I'm impressed and, and I'm just taking in the fact that, you know, final nines, we had big galleries by virtue of the fact that everybody else who had finished playing was out there watching their buddies play. So, you know, that was impressive to me. And then all of a sudden I thought, well, if you, meaning me, <laughs> if you want to be at that level at some point, there's nothing stopping you. Just, you just have to work for it, you know? And so I, I set this goal of being in the final nine of a professional world championship. And I, I, gave myself the grace. I had no idea how long it was going to take, but I was going to continue to work until I reached that goal. And so that was very, very motivating and um, set me on the path that then became my career. And I don't know if I hadn't, if I hadn't seen that level of play and that big of a tournament initially, I, I don't know if this would have been more than just a weekend hobby. I actually had it written down, you know, like, this is what I want to do. And these are the steps that I think that I need to take. And, you know, one of those, it was quite obvious that I wasn't going to get better without pushing myself. And I can't push myself unless I play with better people. And I mean, yes, I can play with better men, 
but it's a little bit different game and it's a different mindset and there are different expectations. So it was very important to me to find where the big fields were going to be at and to try to play in those fields. Well, moving from um, the major events to elite events. So this season, Kristen Tatar went her first 17 elite events without missing a podium. Uh, we call that the the perfect podium. <laughs> and uh, you hold the perfect podium record at 22 events. It started at the first NT, the Golden State Classic, and went through the 2005 Brent Hambrick. What was it like playing the first national tour event? How was it advertised? And, and did it feel different from the, the other events that you were playing? I do. I do remember the first Golden State and I remember the second Golden State because the winners of the first Golden State got their image on a disc at the second Golden State. So the second Golden State is what really felt special <laughs> because that, you know, something like that had never happened before. And it's not just a hot stamp. It was a color, you know, photo uh, realistic image. And they were on minis and they were on full size discs. And, and that was big. So yeah, the Golden State Classic was. It did have a little bit bigger feel for it. It had, I think it might have even had tea times, which was extraordinarily unusual back then. I, I could be wrong on that. But they lengthened the La Mirada course using both front and back. So it was a much bigger course than we would normally play. And, and it, yeah, it, it felt like it was a big deal. Well, you took home $255 for winning that first Golden State Classic. You had already played in 81 events that had a higher payout. When, if ever, did it start to feel like the purses were getting large enough to sustainably tour as a pro? I never experienced that first wow. time. Seriously, I never experienced that. Um, I think at least two of my world titles were under $1,000 for prize money. And my biggest prize money still, well, no, not, not, not still, because this year, um, Portland Open eclipsed it. But with the exception of Portland Open, my biggest prize money in disc golf is taking last place in the tour championship. Wow. Because everybody in the tour championships, you know, that's out first gets $2,500. And that's, that blew away anything that I had won before that. So no, it was never, it was, it was at the expense of financial security that you would go out and tour. Well, it, it's good to see that that's changed <laughs> in a way, um, and and especially seeing now um, having the all-time season cash record being held by a woman is is pretty incredible to see how far it's uh, it's come. But now I can speak to that slightly. So in the early days for USDGC, there were it seemed like every year they would try different methods in which to qualify people to come and play. And one year it was uh, top 10 in money could qualify. And I had top 10 money. You know, it was only $10,000, but it was still <laughs> top 10 in money. But they didn't, they didn't give me that exemption. I then later got the women's world champion exemption. But I was, I'm, I'm still a tiny bit bitter that I didn't get that, <laughs> that exemption for top money. If it's one division, one champion, I figured that yeah. my division should count in in that particular example. As, as well you should. Yeah. As well you should. <laughs> so the 22 elite podium streak that you went on in the national tour from 2003 to 2005, in that time you won 37 different FPO events, including your fifth world title and 15 
of the national tour events. The streak ended at 2006 Memorial, where you took fifth. Incredibly, that tied your worst finish at an FPO event in almost 10 years. <laughs> it, it's hard to rag on a fifth place finish, but did anything stand out about that 2006 Memorial? Well, uh, no, I had a, I was pretty good at blocking out the bad stuff. So I can't. This is really, really apples to oranges because of the field size and maybe unrealistic expectations that I had of myself. But the podium streak back 20 years ago, not something I would be proud of. The only streak I would be proud of is the wins. A second place to me was a complete failure, which was very tough emotionally and mentally. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful that that particular mindset is no longer uh, attached to the sport because that is not healthy way, a healthy way to be an athlete or, or do anything for a profession. When you, when you tell me the podium streak now, thinking back then, I'm, I'm still kind of, oh, <laughs> you know, I, that one second and that, oh, that third, I had a third. I can't believe I had a third. I mean, <laughs> third was just awful. So, you know, it's really night and day for, for those particular stats. And, and um, let's see, you said 2006 is when I had the fifth place. Mm-hmm. I was really starting to get out of it. And the reason that I still played that particular event is because my dad lived in the Phoenix area. So I wasn't really playing. I wasn't really practicing, but I wanted to go see my dad. And so I, I went for that event. Got it. Well, in in that three-year stretch from 2003 to 2005, there were only eight different women who managed to beat you at 53 total events, and only three of them did it multiple times. How were you able to maintain just that level of consistency physically and and mentally for, for so long? At that age, the physical part wasn't a problem. Now, physical part becomes a little bit more <laughs> <laughs> difficult. The, the mental part was was tough. and when I was trying to climb up the hill, trying to get to the top, I was laser focused and I was accepting of the stumbles along the way. And that, that was fine. Once I got to the top, then it completely changed. Now there's something to protect. And now it felt like almost defensive, which is not a good way to play. And you know, it works for a while just on the skill that you've acquired, but then Eventually, eventually, it was my mind that got in the way that probably caused me to walk away from the sport because it was too, I was being too hard on myself. And it was a vicious cycle. And then you start playing poorly and then you're harder on yourself. And yeah, it's the mental part is, is definitely more uh, nebulous. You know, I mean, you can you can think of ways in which you can increase your skill and you can increase your, your distance and you know, your, your abilities and, and practice everything. But to get your mind in the right state is, is much, much, much more difficult. So you took a break from the disc golf core in 2007 and 15 years after you won the Masters Cup in Santa Cruz, you played your first DGPT elite event at OTB Open and you took sixth place. You returned to the national tour back at Masters Cup and you took third. What was it like stepping back into the professional scene at that time and having these awesome finishes? It was nothing short of crazy. 
I knew that I wanted to come back and play women's nationals in Sacramento. And so I had started months before going to the field and doing field work because I didn't want to embarrass myself. <laughs> um, it's sometimes I feel like I need to live up to what I did in the past. And even though it's been, you know, 15 years since I've shown my face, I, I felt like I had to have at least a minimum level of, of skill <laughs> to not embarrass myself. And um, so I put a lot of work into my game to try to get it back up to a decent level before coming out and playing. And um, I just wanted to experience the current tour. I wanted to meet the current players. I wanted to see uh, and feel how different it was. And I wanted to play in a division that has 40, 50 women in it. So it was very surreal because I am you know, the oldest person out there with possibly the most experienced, but yet I felt brand new. <laughs> it was cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, you ended your 2021 season with a 10th place finish at the Music City Open, which was the final national tour event ever. You were the only player to play the first and the last national tour events. And by securing that top 10 finish, you're one of three women who had over 25 national tour starts and 100% top 10s. So now that we've seen sort of the growth and the development of the Disc Golf Pro Tour coming along, how does it feel to have played through that entire national tour period? Uh, I, don't, I don't know that I have the words to express that. It's it's again something that I never would have realized had you not come out and and told me about it. And if you would have said I was one hundred percent top ten for everything twenty years ago, I'd be like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tried. You know, some of it was good, some of it not so good. But when you add the very last event and me coming back and then finishing in the top ten, that is just such a nice to put on that little package and and yeah that actually makes me more proud of all of the earlier stuff so um i i i would have loved to have told um younger me during that first tournament that you know 20 plus years from now you're going to also be playing in the last one and then to see what younger me would have said yeah that's so interesting to think about for sure so you've had one elite podium in each of the last three seasons. This year, you had it at the Portland Open, which had two of the longest courses on tour. Did you feel like that was a surprising finish to you at all? Or did you know kind of going into it, like, I have some of these skill sets that are going to make me really successful on on what looks like a bomber course? Uh, not scared of a bomber course. Not one bit. They might not be my favorite, but I don't think I'm at a disadvantage. Uh, surprise? Yeah. But again, not because of the course. Surprise because of the level of the play of the top women. And I need, I need to be better at allowing myself to believe that I can still compete with the top women. I don't always, I don't, I, sometimes I'm a little, maybe I'm a little too easy on myself and like, oh, you're just out there to, have a good time, even though my, you know, I, I can't do that, but I'm trying to be gentler on myself for my own peace of mind. But then 
you really must believe that you are good enough to play at whatever level you're trying to play. So a little bit of a double-edged sword there. It was an absolute joy to play that tournament. And yes, I was extremely surprised that I was playing, that I earned my spot to play on the lead card with Kristen at an elite event with all the top women. I, I'm, yeah, those rounds made the entire year worth it. That's great to hear. It wasn't just those rounds either. You made the tour championship this year through your consistent play throughout the season. That was one of your goals coming into this season. So congratulations on, on making that tournament. You previously have mentioned that this was going to be your last season on tour. Is this the end or, or um, has making the tour championship uh, made you reconsider a little uh, whether or not to, to hang it up? Okay, so uh, I have done a poor job explaining what that means to me. In my mind, uh, there's a draft- drastic difference, in, and I'll explain what the difference is, but I can understand to an outside observer, they can't tell one bit of difference. So yes, I'm going to be out there and I'm going to be playing next year. I am not going to be chasing the tour championships. So I'm not going to count the number of elite tournaments I play. I'm not going to make sure, you know, if, if and I'm not going to say no to any commentary requests, which I did this year because I wanted to have enough tournaments to not have any zeros in the list um, going into the tour championships. So, so the difference to me is that I will be playing when I can and when it works in my schedule. I will still be out there at times and I, I hope, you know, I hope more than a handful of events, but at, at this point, I don't know which ones, I don't know how many, and it's just because I want to play that event and I'm around there, not for a bigger goal. And that bigger goal is, is what I am, you know, what I, I meant that I'm, I'm no longer striving for. Got it. Well, we we have seen you um, take a a larger role in commentary over the last couple of years. And in your interview with Brian Earhart on The Flight Diaries, which was a a great interview and highly recommend anyone to go listen to that, you mentioned building a fort out of boxes in your mom's print shop and watching the action in the shop unfold. And my first thought was, that's Juliana in the booth. At, at whatever young age that was, how comfortable were you when you first started commentary and, and how has that changed? Extremely uncomfortable. Um, I, I have mentioned this a number of times. So Jonathan Poole, the very first uh, live commentary that I did was, well, actually, that's not true. So 20 years ago, we did you know dabble a little bit here and there, but we'll, we'll not worry about that. So the first time in the our modern era that I did live commentary was for Throw Pink. And Jonathan Poole asked me to be in the booth and I politely declined. And he asked me again and I more strongly declined. And he <laughs> asked me again and I am not comfortable <laughs> being on video and, and being in front of the camera. But because of my history with that course and because of my love and comfort level on that course, I thought this is a challenge put in front of me and it keeps presenting itself. And I think I need to say yes. And I, I actually really enjoyed it at times. 
I, I, um, it's a different kind of stress, but it's still stressful and anxiety ridden. But I do feel like I have something of value to share with the audience. And, and so I, I don't want all of the history of our sport to be lost, which is one reason why all the work that you do is so wonderful. And so I feel like I can help preserve some of that by being in the booth. And I, I want to strive to do more and to be better and to continue in educating new players with things that happened in the past. Your commentary with Hannah is like why I became a DGN subscriber because I paid just to watch that. And I knew the two of you were doing it and it just was, it was outstanding. And I was like, oh, this is live this golf. Like I want this all the time. And we haven't had the pair of you back, which has been pretty disappointing for me, but I just want you to know you did an amazing job if, that first time. If, if it hadn't been somebody as calming and, and, uh, sweet <laughs> next to me in the booth I'm, I might have said no a couple more times but when they told me that Hannah was going to be there then then that made it seem safe enough for me to uh, give it a try so we've we've seen you in the booth we're going to see you a little more on the course next year but then this year you also played in three FP50 majors um, you won two of them, including Masters Worlds, and you're now the first person to win an Amateur World, Pro World, and Masters World title. So congratulations. Thank you. Um, do you have any long-term goals around major titles or Masters major titles, and, and what are your plans for, for competing at those events in the future? I don't. I, I, I mean, obviously, <laughs> I want to win every single one I enter, um, and I'm going to work towards that goal. But the goal setting part of my life has served me well. But I, I'm also now at the age that I'm just trying to be a little bit more in the presence, present and, and um, not be quite as strict and regimented and just sort of go with the flow. So I hope to play many, many, many more age-protected majors for many more years. And much of that will probably be dependent on on how many more events uh, Jim wants to play, my husband. The ability to travel and play with him has been a true gift. And if it's dozens more, um, great. If it's three more, great. We'll see. I, but I, I, do, I do think that, that uh, you'll be seeing, you know, every even if we step away from the course, from the tournaments, and I'm not saying we will, but if we do, I'm, I, I expect that every once in a while, maybe um, you'll see 70-year-old, 80-year-old Juliana out there <laughs> trying to <laughs> try to play. <laughs> I hope so. And, and we'll see you in the field a month before uh, yes. doing your field work to prep yes, for that it so true. that you can be competitive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I'm confident we won't see you trying to play. We will see you succeeding at playing if you're out there. So, Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This, this has been fantastic. And you have a lot of travel coming up this off season. So I don't know how restful it'll be for you, but um, enjoy the Southern Hemisphere and, and your, is it the New Zealand disc golf tour you're playing? Yes. Yes. Jim and I will be playing three events in New Zealand starting the first or the last weekend of January and then a couple weeks in February before 
we start things up here. I hope that's a ton of fun. Great luck. <laughs> thank you. And thanks. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much. My pleasure. All right, we're back in the booth here, Steve, with Emily. What just an amazing conversation. It's so fun to talk to these pros that just have so much knowledge and, and history in the game. Did have one slight correction. Um, Juliana mentioned when first going to View Worlds, she said she went to 99 Worlds in Huntsville, Alabama. She meant to say 1993. So just a quick correction there. But so much history, so much amazing play in her time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how fun is it to share stats with her about her incredible streaks and accomplishments? And she's not even aware of them because we hadn't necessarily been keeping track of those sorts of things. And, you know, when you're Juliana Corver, you're just too busy going out and winning and, you know, doing it. So <laughs> you can't be bothered to know every awesome thing that you've ever done. So really awesome to share that with her. Yeah. And and that competitor's mindset too, of just, if she's not in first place, she's disappointed and, and tracking more the losses than the wins um, in her mind, because the win is the baseline and, and the losses stand out more. So just, just so great to talk to her and really glad we were able to, to get her on the show. So stay tuned for our next episode. Um, we will be wrapping up our discussion of Kristen Tatar's season with a discussion of some of the greatest FPO seasons of all time. And we'll also sit down with another multi-time world champion, Des Redding, to talk about her best seasons and um, more about the FPO game. You know, in the end, I just wanted to dominate and everything was consuming around how to be a better disc golfer, how to teach to be a better disc golfer to other people. And that just really was clicking in the games. That's next week here on the stat line. Thanks to Josh Mansfield for our intro. We will see you next week here on the Stat Bando Podcast Network. Mm-hmm.